The Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, and welcome to the Art Newspaper's Weekly Podcast. My name's Ben Luke. Coming up, we'll talk to the curator Victor Wang about an exhibition he's organised of the work of the First Nations artist Lawrence Paul Yukwelopton. The traditional aspects of Indigenous culture and how, how artists can weave pre-colonial and post-colonial lifeways together into contemporary art is something quite unique and interesting. But first this week, I'm joined by John Darlington, the Executive Director of the World Monuments Fund Britain. John has just returned from southern Iraq, where the organisation is helping local people address the conservation of their heritage. John, can you tell me what the World Monuments Fund is and what's your role within it? Uh, World Monuments Fund, based out of New York, it's over 50 years old now, uh, it's a heritage charity which really supports, champions uh, heritage across the whole world. So World Monuments has worked with about 800 different projects in 100 different countries, so extremely extensive. My role is that I, I head up World Monuments Fund Britain, which is uh, one of the affiliates, and I look after British uh, projects and projects where Britain has a link abroad. John, you've just returned from southern Iraq. Can you tell us a bit about that experience? Uh, absolutely extraordinary experience. Uh, I was invited out there uh, by the British Museum, who have their Iraq training scheme running, uh, the idea being to train Iraqi professionals to look after heritage in post-conflict situations. Uh, I went out for over 10 days, and uh, my role really was to bring some conservation expertise to the excavations which are taking place in the southern part of Iraq near Basra. Uh, and as I say, the the site that we looked at and the people we worked with were incredible. This is one of the oldest sites, one of the oldest cities in in the entire world. It's where is, it, is it Tello? Is that right? It's Tello. Yes, historic Gersu is is its official title. Uh, but yes, it's a it's an ancient Sumerian city which uh, kind of forms out of various different settlements to grow into, as I say, one of the world's first urban settlements uh, and with it comes writing and cuneiform and an amazing assemblage of temples and a service industry so we were out there to explore uh, to, to, to re-excavate and re-explore a site which was first excavated by the French in the 1900s early 1900s and at the same time to train Iraqi professionals in the best practice for archaeology and conservation. So can you tell me about the recent history of this area? Because it was quite badly affected by the civil war. Uh, yes, it, it was. I mean, the whole of Iraq has been affected by not just the civil war, but earlier wars. So the place is uh, is, is raw, I'm guessing. Uh, the, the This area suffers from looting, as does much parts, many parts of Iraq. Uh, and the absence of a kind of professional cadre of, of archaeologists and conservators who can actually help and do something about it. Also, really interesting for me is this is a, a poor area of Iraq, a predominantly uh, Shia Muslim area, and uh, a large number of the, uh, the, the, the militias which are fighting uh, Daesh in the north actually come from this area. So it's, it's a very uh, curious balance of uh, the impact of war and people trying to get back to normal. Now, you've been working specifically on a bridge, is that right? That's correct, yes. It's, uh, uh, again, 
an utterly mind-blowing uh, archaeological site, uh, huge in dimension. So we're talking about uh, an ancient canal, and if you uh, people probably don't know, but the the, the reason Samaria became uh, sort of uh, the first urban societies is because they were able to irrigate through these great canals. And this uh, huge canal was forded by uh, an absolutely enormous, massive bridge. Uh, and part of my role out there was to look at how we conserve this bridge, which has been exposed for the last 80 years and, and needs some help. Uh, but I'd say enormous structure, very much part of the ceremonial structure. So if you imagine a holy city in the southern desert of Iraq and you imagine in 2100 BC, you're approaching the holy city. The first thing you see is this enormous bridge with a gateway and then you're into something really, really special. Now, you're working with these local people um, how how do you go about that, and what are the results? You have to have great partnerships. So we we have uh, uh, the British Museum uh, in this case has a a very well established partnership with the Iraqi archaeological authorities and the Iraqi government. Uh, so you have to have that local partner. You you just cannot do it on your own. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is that uh, by actually integrating within that community the benefits of your work in that community spread to that community. So the example I'd give is with the British Museum scheme, uh, the 50 or so workers who come and help with the excavations will probably earn as much in that the two months that they're working on the scheme as they would in the entire year. So imagine the impact of that on settlements and communities that surround those archaeological sites. It's enormous. So, so the goodwill is absolutely there and that's important too. And is there also a, a sense of pride among that local community about about restoring the their surroundings? Uh, definitely, definitely from throughout. So whether it's uh, the workmen who are hefting great barrows of earth across the site, or actually uh, some of the the uh, the coordinators who are just inspired by the place and want to tell its story. This this, after all, is one of the cradles of civilization and uh, they want to give that impression of what Iraq was and still could be rather than the the rather dour picture that we have at the moment. Now the art newspaper's just been covering the opening of the Louvre Abu Dhabi which of course is tremendously important culturally but this story is in its own way of absolutely vital significance to the culture of the Middle East. Uh, Totally I think the Abu Dhabi wonderful you know we can all celebrate that but if you think of the investment which the, the British government have made uh, in in this area, it's it's you know, in huge value for money. So not only do you impact upon those local communities, those people who uh, are brought into the project, but you also uh, influence the future uh, uh, management, I guess, of heritage in Iraq. So we know from the British Museum scheme that some of the first people who went through the scheme are now slowly climbing up the, uh, the the structures of management and will therefore be able to influence the management of politics of, of uh, Iraq's heritage from for, for, for a long time to come. So it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful investment both in terms of people, in terms of soft power, in terms of expertise. Now, because Iraq has gone through so much conflict, how does one go about choosing the projects to put one's energy into? Uh, I, again probably quite a complex question. I think the answer lies in 
the connections which whichever agency is promoting that project in whichever country has. So those personal connections are very important. The ability to know that you can deliver on the ground. Uh, and even then, you know, things things don't work out sometimes. We the with the British Museum scheme, we know that the uh, there were two excavations, one in the south, which I was involved with, one in the north. The north one is a bit on hold at this moment because of the political atmosphere uh, in that part of Iraq. So I think it's definitely partly where where you can make a difference, where there are uh, country connections, emotional connections. Uh, and and where you have the right people in place. It's it's all about, fundamentally, it's all about the people. Now, your next project is taking you to Jordan, but working with Syrian refu- refugees. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, this is, this is my favourite project at the moment. Uh, essentially, we've been looking at World Monuments Fund about how we can help in areas of conflict. And in particular, when an opportunity came up through the British government's uh, fund the cultural protection fund we were looking at well what, what's the best way that we can make a difference here and for me there were three issues which are, are in, in closely closely linked the first is that we know that heritage in syria in jordan in this whole arena is you know, monumental and incredibly important and has suffered it's suffered through the hands of daesh uh, isis whatever you may call them uh, or it suffered simply by being in the crosshairs of, of conflict. So, so that's problem number one. Problem number two, we know from deep experience that once war ends, there may be there may be resources from countries to to conserve, sometimes to restore uh, the heritage of those countries. But what there won't be is the skill set because that's evaporated. Uh, so that's problem number two. And then problem number three is you have on the fringes of Syria, particularly huge refugee communities in the area that our project uh, is has set up. Uh, there is a refugee community uh, camp called Zatari, which is 80,000 people strong, which wasn't there before the conflict. Uh, and an equal number actually in and around the town of Mafrak. So those three issues, how do, you, how do you solve those three issues? And what we've done is that we've gone straight to the centre of a, the Venn diagram of those three, three problems, really. And essentially, our project is about training Syrian refugees in conservation stonemasonry so that we give them the skills to return to their country or to work in other countries and restore heritage. So you, you give skills, but you also, really, really importantly, you give hope. How new a model is the idea of training local people to help out with conservation? Uh, I can't pretend it's new. So uh, World Monuments Fund has been doing this in Cambodia, in Angkor Wat, for, for many, many years. The, the the people that we're using to head up the Syrian project, actually we've just used on a project in uh, Zanzibar to restore uh, Christchurch Cathedral in Zanzibar, so that the master mason who leads this project has we've taken him from Zanzibar and and put him into Mafrak in Jordan, uh, and he, he's the kind of he's the the academic and the skills uh, master, I guess, in this. And then we surround him with great local people. That's the idea. Do you know how many refugees you'll be working with? Uh, it's a small pilot project. Uh, at the moment, we have recruited, so they've already started, they're up and running. We've recruited uh, 30 refugees. We're looking at taking another tranche because it's working so well. But 30 refugees, mostly Syrians, uh, but some local Jordanians as well. It's quite important when you have 
communities uh, which have an influx of refugees to 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 recognize the impact of that influx uh, and for us one of the things that we're really proud of and interested in is that we've got uh, a gender balance as well so it's it's uh, at the moment, I think it's eighteen men and twelve women, and in a in a craft skill such as stonemasonry, where women don't normally appear, that's something we were very keen to to to, to promote. And so, what do you envisage as the timeline for this project from this point? So we started two months ago, uh, coming up to two months ago now, and we'll conclude at the end of next September. Uh, by that time, we will have trained 30 uh, plus actually Syrian refugees and Jordanians in conservation stonemasonry so we'll have people with a new skill set we will also through our our key partner on the ground which is the Petra National Trust we'll have also taken at least 120 school children through uh, a kind of heritage engagement program as well Um, and then at the end of that we'll review the projects hopefully we'll go back to the british council to say look this was a fantastically successful project great value for money uh let's roll it out further in jordan maybe in turkey that would be my ambition uh but most importantly we will have left a pool of people who who can actually deliver some some wonderful conservation um so what about the money how how much is this all costing and how are you funded and can people help so in terms of money, the British Museum scheme, the Iraq scheme, is just under £3 million, and that's funded through the British government. Uh, the same applies actually to uh, World Monuments Fund's uh, Jordan, the Syrian uh, Refugee Stonemasonry Training Scheme. That actually is is great value at £500,000. We we clearly want support in the future. It's a great idea. It seems to be working very well. So World Monuments Fund would would gladly have conversations with anyone who'd like to support that work in the future. I think building skills and building capacity and helping local people to look after their heritage is the absolutely critical thing here. John, thank you very much. Next week, an exhibition opens at Canada House in London, dedicated to leading First Nations artist Lawrence Paul Yookwellupton. Despite the fact that he's widely connected among museums in Canada and elsewhere, this is his first solo exhibition in Europe. Victor Wang, a curator based in Shanghai and London, has organised the show and joins me now. Victor, can you tell us how you came to curate this exhibition? Sure. I was originally invited uh, by Canada House to curate an exhibition in their galleries. Um, being a Canadian myself, born in Vancouver, um, I jumped at the opportunity. But through a discussion, I realized um, that there were some huge gaps within their programming. And so in some ways, as a no-brainer, I jumped at the opportunity to show um, a First Nations artist. And that's how we ended up here. So so tell me a bit more about Lawrence Paul. He's, he's, a, he's a painter predominantly. I mean, in some ways, Lawrence Paul is an activist. First, he was born into an activist family. His father and mother were both um, largely involved in the politics of indigenous people. Uh, he was a painter trained at the Emily Carr University, which is also in Vancouver. And he is, he is Coast Salish and Slee uh, from the Okanagan, Okanagan First Nations. And he is a, a, a painter, definitely, but um, he's also like a, a recorder of history, of indigenous histories. Uh, where he sees painting as a space to record these histories and as a way of capturing certain traditions, oral histories, and political events that are being 
um, either erased or not recognized within the institutions that are meant to record history. I was intrigued by a very distinct quality in his work, which I think a lot of Western viewers would associate with surrealism. Right. But what's interesting is that he sees that as, in a way, a kind of reclaiming of surrealism. That's right. Can you tell us a bit about that? Lawrence feels, and and in many ways he's not... um, the only artist to feel this. I mean, I mean, there's a there's exhibitions being done now and art historical work being d- done now about the relations between Dada, Dadaism and and African culture. Uh, but Lawrence Paul um, Sholawapton f- does feel that surrealism was o- always an indigenous perspective. He believes that being surreal and the ideology of it was always an indigenous perspective and way of life and being. And in fact, um, it arrived to Europe through the artifacts and through the exploration of the so-called new world or first people, uh, whatever you'd like to call it, uh, through through the mediums and frameworks of anthropology and ethnography that uh, the European artists of the time um, began to be exposed further to these to these kind of cultures and 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 so Lawrence sees uh, the First Nations people as kind of the precursor to that. Now the exhibitions at Canada House, as you say, have you had complete freedom in terms of how you're organising the show and take and how you approach <laughs> these sort of major themes in 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 Canadian history? No, not at all. I mean, every show I've done this year has somewhat been censored or blocked. Um, as you know, I work a lot within China and within different contexts, but. In many ways, I think if I'm not being censored, then then what am I really speaking about as a curator? Um, but, you know, my, my text has obviously been edited. It is in Canada House, which is an extension of the Canadian government um, um, within a British soil. So anything that leaves the institution has to be looked uh, over by the communications officer. So I've had... I mean, I don't... Maybe I shouldn't go into too much detail, but I've, I've had uh, words changed and... and I mean, yeah, it was it was a major back and forth, uh, all, only because, and it's not that it was an unproductive conversation. It's actually a conversation with a government. So, in some ways, for the government to release certain terms or even um, elements of my text is for them to actually recognize what is being said. So, some things had to be come out because, as an inst- as a government, as a political body, they cannot recognize or even put their name on certain things that I was saying. So 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 yeah, um in order for the the government to release my text as it was, it it was for them to kind of you know to okay the things that were being said or agreeing with uh, what was actually occurring at that time because I'm talking about things like cultural genocide, colonization, the displacement of people, indigenous sovereignty, and the government may have, the Canadian government, and not just, um, you know, Trudeau's, but historically may have very different perspectives on that. that. I mean, there is this perception that the Liberal government in Canada has a more progressive view of right. First Nations peoples. Right. How accurate would you say that is? It's progressive in some views, um, you know, uh, Trudeau has appointed and has done things, but in many others not. I think it's 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 very difficult. I would say, in terms of in- indigenous policies, most likely not. Um, and you can see there's examples of that with the Keystone pipelines or the the oil pipelines that are being developed across uh, Canada, or even um, the Reconciliation Act. 
um, the acknowledgement of residential schools, uh, the cultural genocide that occurred there, um, to the to the treatment of of even healthcare and education on reservations. There's so much work to be done. So so, but then again, it's 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 very difficult within government and policy to just stroke a pen and, and for it to take effect. So it it's hard to say. But I think I think there's been more discussion, but I don't know if it's necessarily been as productive as as one would assume. And and there's the extra layer that not only is this Lawrence Paul's first exhibition mm. in Europe. Yeah. It happens to be in the UK, yeah. and the UK is inevitably directly implicated yes. in that history of oppression of First Nations peoples. Yes, the the conversation of indigenous sovereignty is also a conversation of the legacy of imperialism with Canada. Um, this year, the reason why this show is is very important is because it's in response to Canada's celebration of of their 150th year of confederation which in fact is is not entirely accurate what what they are celebrating is the is the signing of the British North American Act and the British North American Act was signed in 18 i want to say 1867 and what basically what that created is a dominion um and, and with a capital D and that's a new type of colony and it's a colony that basically is an extension of the British Empire that was meant to serve the needs of the British Empire um, by by extracting resources and feeding it back to Britain, so so in some ways Canada is really developing that. Actually, it wouldn't be until 1982, uh, I think it was the patriation of the Constitution, where Canada finally became somewhat sovereign. And ironically, so within that historically, um, with the British North American Act, all Canadians were deemed as uh, British subjects. So we actually belong to the empire. But with the patriation in 82, actually, we lost that title. And and of course, it was around the time when um, the empire was no longer fashionable and neither was um, colonialism. So it was kind of, they quickly stroked that that um, ink and paper. Um, so, so it's important to have this discussion within the UK because it opens up conversations about Britain's role in not only the development of, of the modern day Canada as a country, and of course there's France's role within that too, uh, but the a discussion about the sovereignty of indigenous lands. And I imagine that Lawrence Poole feels that is a tremendously important thing for his work to actually be on display in London in this way. Yeah, I mean, in, in many ways, the conversation with, with Lawrence um, was a conversation of surprise to, to know that Canada House would actually let us do this. Um, it was it was kind of a shock, but in, in many ways, you know, I have to t- tilt my hat to them because they know the conversations are difficult, but they need to have them. It, it's, it's no longer something you can ignore. And in fact, with the Reconciliation Act, these difficult discussions need to the frameworks need to be implemented within the politics of Canada. And so with Lawrence, it's, it's great. It's great. We've had great discussions. And so even within the title, uh, he, he puts in... Tell, say what the title is. <laughs> it's Time Immemorial, You're Just Mad Because We Got Here First, in brackets. And, and Time Immemorial is an important concept because it's a concept of time that exists um, beyond memory. So it's often used in, in modern law as a way of, of, of expressing ownership to a land or to a place without having to prove 
that you've that you come from there because it goes beyond the memory of of whoever needs to um to uh um, express that and so and so you're just mad that we got here first is is showing that the indigenous population had a a very vibrant civilization and society pre-european european um exercising dominion over indigenous lands um and then of course then creating this idea of a nation state on top of that so so it kind of you know goes to express this 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 um not authority but you know just just a claim of of land and it's about land rights it's about the exercising of your own natural resources it's about um, healthy salmon populations or or the freedom to roam and to exercise dominion uh, you know these types of things this show comes at a moment when first nations art is actually more present in western art dialogues than perhaps it has ever been right um you you, you were you went to documenta this year and you, yeah. you you saw that in in effect yeah i mean i Documenta, and I, I mean, there was a very great um, indigenous, a First Nations artist that was part of the Documenta team, and she's doing fantastic work. And she, uh, I believe it was her that included Bo Dick, um, who's a who's a Haida Gwaii. He's a her- hereditary chief, amazing spiritual leader and carver, and his mask works displayed in the Documenta Halle, and. And I think because of that, a lot of people were exposed again to kind of this indigenous contemporary art and people were, I mean, rightfully so, became very big fans. And and Lawrence Paul is very much part of this generation. And then, of course, in the US, there's conversations about Jimmy Durham and and his, you know, his relation to indigenous people. And, 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 that, and that is a very complex conversation about... Um, you know his hereditary lineage or his his claim to certain first nations groups and so on now some commentators have noted that with an increasing interest in indigenous art comes the downside that people begin to look for an indigenous look mm. quote unquote which in some ways limits the artist's freedom to develop their practices is that something that you've noted i mean yeah i well i don't think this is anything new Right, the 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 selling of of a, of a so-called authentic culture to Western Europe has been a long-standing tradition, probably from the development of anthropology and ethnography. The needing to fit into a certain Western um, classification of a culture and people, and then anything that exceeds that is excluded from the canon, is a great is a very powerful tool. And institutions and museums are at the foundation of that, where if you cannot prove or your aesthetics exist outside of a certain remit, then you will not be allowed to enter the dialogue. And that is not unique to indigenous uh, contemporary art. I mean, you know, I work a lot in China and, and Chinese artists also suffer from this, where a certain younger generation, say post 89, are working on a more international platform. So you have a lot of artists, curators, dealers, collectors struggling to look at contemporary art that doesn't look Chinese enough. And the same could be said about African-American populations. And this goes back to even questions about identity politics of the early 90s. And I don't think indigenous um, contemporary art is immune from that. 
the only the difference though being and i think uh, although there are many one to highlight is that the traditional aspects of indigenous culture and how how artists can weave pre-colonial and post-colonial life ways together uh into contemporary art is something quite unique and interesting and the and the question then becomes a question of indigenous contemporaneity and how does one express within a contemporary form aspects of culture and tradition if one chooses to do so and there are many great indigenous artists that we can name that are are dealing with these issues and is there an infrastructure to, to kind of support artists in the right way yet in place i think in actually in vancouver it varies from province to province um and and even um the recognition of unceded lands so unceded territories is very important a conversation to have and an important element of Lawrence's practice. And those are the lands that belong to indigenous populations that were never signed away through treaty or lost through war or any agreement has been made, but rather the government just built over top of them and, and exercised their dominion. And those are called unceded traditional territories. And British Columbia, the province which Vancouver sits in, I believe is 90% unceded territory. So technically, it is 90% still belongs to to, uh, First Nations people. And that varies from province to province. And because of that, uh, the frameworks also vary from province to province. Um, But I would say that the, the support structures are not there. They are in their infancy, if anything. There are grants. The Canada Council offers grants to Indigenous people. There are great Indigenous initiatives that are working to do fantastic, um, to show, such as the Grunt Gallery in Vancouver and, and many others. So there is, there are, um, I would say, individuals and, and smaller mid-scale institutions. But in terms of like a museum or a school or a university, uh, there are actually some good programs in, in the University of British Columbia, but not necessarily for like contemporary Indigenous art. If we could return to Lawrence Poole's exhibition to yeah. end, tell us what highlights uh, visitors to the show might, might witness. Some of his early drawings, I think his work, his pen and paper work, which sometimes are studies for his paintings, are really fantastic. Uh, we have one, for example, White Man Speaks with Forked Tongue, <clears throat> which is a personal favorite and it, it's part of his um, predator series which often depict humanoid figures in stylized traditional northwest coast masks with serpent tongues and business suits and in many ways it talks to this idea of the struggles that indigenous people have with having certain cultures or values recognized in modern european law going through court systems, going through educational systems, and having to deal with a, a settler colony. And having and the struggles of having a settler colony recognize certain elements and having that standardized um, um, across the board. So, so it's a very loaded work. And, and much of Lawrence's work is like that, actually. And there's, I mean, some really great paintings as well that we've shipped over. So I'm very excited for that. And actually, uh, Lawrence is going to be here too for the opening. So it's a great opportunity to meet the artist and to see the work. And it's his first show, solo show in Europe. So, Victor, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben.
The exhibition Time Immemorial, You're Just Mad Because We Got Here First, opens at the Canada Gallery in Canada House, London, on 30th of November and continues until the 17th of February. You can read more about the increased recognition of First Nations artists in the US in December's print edition of the art newspaper. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, and if you have a moment, post a rating or review. And you can let us know what you think on Twitter or Facebook at The Art Newspaper, and follow us on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Thank you.